Good morning. Um, it's my pleasure to lead us in corporate prayer. If you would, uh, bow your heads and let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, we bow down before you and we praise you for your forgiveness, Lord, defeating uh, the ultimate penalty for our sin. Lord, your mercy, um, as you make suffering tolerable on this earth, and Father, for your grace that you've redeemed us as heirs to spend eternity uh, with you. We can't wait to sit uh, in your presence, and we expectantly look uh, for your return, and we beg you to come to us and rescue us soon, Father. Lord, we do lift up uh, the prayer request of the church. Father, we uh, pray, we thank you, we praise you for the birth of Fraser. Kay Holsey, and uh, parents Cassie and Jacob Holsey. Father, we um, would also lift up the Hogwood family, Catherine Hogwood and Mark and uh, their children, Mary Luke and Anna, in the death of her stepfather. Lord, we lift up um, our missionary partners. Father, I pray for Aaron and Rachel Halbert and Alex and Maggie Halbert as they serve um, at Sovereign Grace Church in Honduras, Father. I pray for their ministry in Honduras. Lord, I also pray for our partner, Forgotten Children's Ministry in Honduras. And Lord, just pray that you would use um, um, all of them to uh, serve your purpose, Father, in a uh, country, in an area that um, desperately needs your mercy and your salvation, Father. Use them, encourage them. Lord, and we also lift up um, Jamie Shields' family. And uh, Father, I would lift up um, Catherine, um, Curtis and Marissa Shields, and Rachel and Walt Davis, Father. Lord, we praise you for um, him, praise you for his death. <laughs> Lord, today he walks without a limp. Today he's not shaking. Today he sits at your feet. Father, a man who has graciously served you for a long time, Father, and we're so grateful for the ministry that he has brought to covenant as well as um, the legacy that he leaves um, with his family. So, Father, today he sits there. You've answered all of his questions that I know he's got, and we just praise you for his life and his time here at uh, Covenant, Father. To you be the glory. Father, we pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Uh, I'm not Robbie Holt, despite what you may have read in your worship guide, but I am John Fountain, and I am honored to be here with you this morning, clothed and in my right mind. Thanks be to God. Uh, we are continuing this morning with our study in First Peter. Uh, one of the ways you can think about First Peter as is sort of a, a handbook or a manual for Christian uh, missional living in a fallen world. Peter begins his book by addressing his readers and us as elect exiles. The church are those who have been called by God to himself 
out of the world and into his family as beloved sons and daughters, and then sent back out into the world as ambassadors, as agents for his kingdom and for his gospel. So we're those who are chosen and yet those who are exiled, those who are no longer at home in this world because we have a new home, a heavenly city to which we are moving towards. And because of that dual reality uh, of our chosenness and our exile, there's an inherent tension that the church experiences between itself and the world. Attention, sometimes even a hostility uh, from the world towards the church. And because of this, Peter's been very clear throughout his letter that the church often experiences uh, hardship and suffering because of its faithfulness. And so we come to a portion of our letter today where Peter is uh, very clear about that, that the church will suffer for righteousness. And in our suffering, he wants to remind us of something uh, very important, that if God should will, graciously will, that his church should suffer, that he will be faithful to us in our suffering. And there's a number of elements of this suffering we'll see in our text today as we consider God's faithfulness uh, to us in it. And first we'll see the expectation of Christian suffering. We'll also see the blessing of suffering. God has promised to bless his church as they suffer for his name. And then finally we'll see the test of suffering. God has ordained that his church would suffer and he tests us in that suffering. So I invite you now to turn with me to the scriptures. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. This is God's word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for this Lord's Day, a time set apart for worship and rest and mercy. Thank you for your church, for those whom you have called to yourself, and thank you that you've called us to participate 
uh, in the great work that you are doing in the world to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And, O Lord, as we open your scriptures this morning, would you open our hearts and open our ears. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in our text this morning is the expectation of Christian suffering. You see it right there in verse 12. Peter says, beloved, those loved by the Lord, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Don't be surprised when you experience suffering for your Christian faith, for the testimony of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Why is this? Why would Peter say such a thing? Well, it's the testimony everywhere of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ who told his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. For servant is not greater than his master. Our master, the Lord Jesus, suffered for righteousness. He entered into a world in rebellion against him to lay his life down for that world, to save that world. And that world did not receive him, but it rejected him and persecuted him. And at the culmination of his life, the religious leaders and the secular leaders of his day joined together to falsely accuse and try him. And he was hung on a tree, executed for the very ones he came to save. Ironically, actually achieving that salvation in his death, his substitutionary death for his people and resurrection from the dead. So we follow a Lord who suffered for his people, who was persecuted. And as we faithfully follow our now risen Lord, the scriptures are clear that we will face similar kinds of suffering and persecution because the kingdom that God is bringing is necessarily at odds in many places, not all places, uh, with the world and the, the kingdoms of this world. And isn't it a gracious and faithful thing that God has been honest to us about this soft suffering? There's no bait and switch. He hasn't told us, hey, following me is going to be pie in the sky easy. And then we experience tension and we wonder, hey, what's going on here? But he's been honest to us. He says, don't be surprised when this happens to you. Which is very interesting because as you consider the cultural moment that we're in, as you look around at Christendom, it does seem like a lot of Christians are very surprised that there is now tension and hostility between the church and the world. Even appalled and shocked and outraged, in some ways rightly so. Well, why is that? Why are we so surprised if Peter and Paul and Jesus have said, don't be surprised? Well, maybe some of us have never read Peter or Paul or Jesus. But it is worth noting that we live in a culture, a civilization, Western civilization, that has been deeply shaped by the gospel that has been deeply shaped by the church and the values of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that at many times and in many places, the values even of secular people and atheists have been very similar uh, to those of Christians. But this is increasingly uh, ceasing to be the case. 
And if you consider this from a historical perspective or a global perspective, it's a little bit of an anomaly. The church all over the world and in all times uh, has faced suffering and persecution for its testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even right now, in the world we live in, in places like India and Afghanistan and Nigeria and China, even places like Israel and the Ukraine, Christians are losing their homes, churches are being destroyed. By one count last year, there were at least 6,000 believers executed for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even right now, at this particular moment, while we worship here uh, freely, there are Christians worshiping in secret and in hiding for fear of their safety. And they're not surprised. It's their expectation that this would be the case. And so for us here in the West, as the cultural tide does shift, friends, let us not be surprised at suffering when it comes, at persecution when it comes. It is to be expected. So much so that one martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even said that suffering is the badge of true discipleship. Now, to be fair, it is hard to imagine what real suffering might look like for us in this context. What is it that we should expect? Well, some of us are already experiencing this now, Uh, particularly some of our young people or those on the college campus have been mocked and ridiculed for their Christian faith or for their Christian ethics and morals. Many of you maybe in your workplaces have been encouraged or even forced in some ways to affirm beliefs and practices that are antithetical to the faith. I'm aware of a number of street preachers who've been jailed uh, here in America and in the UK for simply preaching the claims of Jesus. We've even experienced in recent years uh, shootings in Christian churches and schools. One of my seminary professors, a church history professor, Dan Doriani, said this. He said that this generation's Christian leaders will die in their beds, but the next, Christian, the next generation's Christian leaders will die in chains, and the next will die in flames. And beloved, let us not be surprised when this happens. God's been very honest about it. Now, let's be honest, that's not very encouraging. Not a great start to a sermon, (laughs) but it gets a little better because friends, even though we should expect suffering for our Christian faith, God has also promised to bless us in our suffering so that it would even be a cause for rejoicing. And you see that beginning in verse 13. Peter says, don't be surprised when this happens, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, there's a number of elements here worth mentioning. One is that we're blessed because in as much as we share in Christ's sufferings, we're also fellowshipping with Jesus Christ. We're partnering with him. We're sharing with him in his sufferings. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered once for us, once and for all that he might bring us to God. 
the righteous for the unrighteous. And now that God has declared us righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to share in that suffering, to suffer with and for the world that, for which Jesus died. And so we partnership with him. We share in him, not in a salvific way, but we truly share in Christ's sufferings. And we are actually conformed into his image the more we share in them. And so we rejoice. Peter says we also rejoice because our current suffering points to a future glory. As we suffer now, we're mindful of Christ's suffering. He suffered once. He no longer suffers. He sits enthroned in majesty and glory at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all creation in majesty and splendor and beauty. And we're reminded that as we suffer now, that glory will be made known to us in a much more clear way. We see Jesus dimly now as through a mirror, but we will see him clearly then. As we suffer now, we're blessed because we're assured of what is coming to us in the new heavens and the new earth. So we're blessed and we rejoice. But there's an even more beautiful blessing here because God also promises to be with us in a unique way as we suffer. Look at verse 14. If you're insulted, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This word glory refers to the dwelling presence of God with his people. There's a sense in which God is always with his people. He always dwells in us. He always dwells with his church. But there's also a way in which God can uniquely be with his people. Think about the way uh, God uniquely met with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. This is the Shekinah glory, God's dwelling presence. And if God should call us to suffer, he doesn't call us to suffer alone, but he will meet with us there in a unique way to encourage us, to equip us, to uphold us in our suffering. What a beautiful thing. Think of the first martyr, Stephen, as he was stoned to death for his testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The heavens opened up and he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. The dwelling presence of God was with him as he suffered. In 2007... Uh, 23 Christian missionaries to Afghanistan were uh, kidnapped, were captured by the Taliban. Uh, They were tortured. Some of them were executed. And after an amount of time, they were eventually released and were allowed to go back to Seoul in South Korea. And one of them was reported to have said uh, to another one, don't you wish we were still imprisoned by the Taliban? When I was surrounded by these soldiers, I felt the presence of Jesus in there with me. But now that we're back in Seoul, I'm trying to experience that intimacy with him, but I can't. I fast and I pray and I don't feel it. I would rather be back there because of the intimacy that I had with Jesus. Uh, Friends, as Christians, we don't go out of our way to pursue suffering. Suffering is not a good thing in and of itself. But just know that if it be God's gracious will that you should suffer for his name, he will bless you in an incredible way as you suffer and strengthen you for that suffering. 
Now I want you to notice here there's also another kind of suffering that Peter mentions, one that God has not promised to bless. That is not a cause for rejoicing. Look at verse 15. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. In other words, you can suffer for your own sin and there's no blessing for you in that. And it's interesting, he names these sins for which you would hope that no Christian would be known. Murder, theft, evildoer. Uh, And then he names this very interesting thing of uh, meddling or being a busybody. Being unduly concerned with other people's business. And this is an interesting word here. The, uh, the literal Greek translation is something like a strange pastor or a strange overseer. And so this is a picture of someone who's pastoring a flock that they have no business pastoring. What does Peter mean by this? One commentator writes, this meddling may have included censoring the behavior of outsiders on the basis of claims to a higher morality, interfering with family relationships, fomenting domestic discontent and discord, tactless attempts at conversion, blaming the world for being bad, attempting to bully the world into conformity with Christian morality. And this is why some of us who think we're suffering for the kingdom aren't rejoicing very much because we're just grumpy moral people. And there's no promise of blessing to grumpy moral people who think they're better than everyone else around them. Because our call isn't to show the world that we're better than them. It's actually to suffer on behalf of the world. To lay down our lives for the world. To do good to those who would do us harm. To bless those who curse us. And so, beloved, know, again, that if God calls you to suffer on his sake, he will bless you in that suffering so much that you can even rejoice that he has counted you worthy to suffer for the name and bring glory to God in your suffering. Now, the last thing we see in our text is that Peter wants us to know that suffering is a test. It's actually a test from the Lord. And you see this in a few ways. First, you'll notice in verse 12, uh, Peter refers to a fiery trial that has come upon you. And Peter here is referencing something he's already said. In chapter one, he speaks of Christians who were grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of their faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this refers back to something Malachi wrote in which he spoke of the Messiah coming being as like a refiner's fire. And so this language of a fiery trial as a, as a test is like metallurgy, language. So if you have a precious metal, you expose it to extreme heat and the impure elements, the dross burns away. And what you're left with is that which is most pure. And so Peter is telling us that suffering is like a crucible for our faith, a fire in which our faith is purified so that sin and impurity melts away And we're left with a more pure devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when things get hard, we cling on to that which we love the most. Which for a Christian must be Jesus Christ and his gospel. So beloved, know that if you experience suffering 
for the Lord that he is purifying you, that he is conforming you more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is true on an individual, but it's also true on a corporate level. It's true for the church at large. In times of suffering, when persecution comes, those who are not truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone will fall away. Because when things get hard, they're, they're getting out of there. There's no reason to stick around. And it's very true that in times of persecution, the church has often flourished the most. And we see this right now in the global south and in the Middle East and in China where the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Now, the second way you see this testing is in verse 17. And he refers to it as the the judgment of God, which is coming upon the household of God. And what Peter's pointing out here is that a current judgment, a current suffering that Christians might face is in some ways a a precursor or a foretaste to the eschatological judgment, the judgment that is coming in the end of days. Think what happens in that end of days judgment. All humanity comes before God Almighty and he separates them, the just and the unjust, the righteous from the unrighteous, the godly from the sinner, those who have obeyed the gospel and those who have rejected God's offer of amnesty. He's referring here to that final eschatological judgment. And what he's saying is that when suffering comes to the church, it's a foretaste of that. Because like I said, what happens when suffering comes to the church? Those who are not truly of the faith will be separated. They will leave. They will fall away. Judgment comes first to the church. And so as the church suffers, what happens is the winnowing begins. The faithful and the unfaithful. And the righteous, though they may suffer now, suffer only for a little while. A light momentary affliction, Paul calls it. But those who refuse God's offer of amnesty, who refuse the good news of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom, will face an eternal suffering. Notice here that Peter does not assume that all those who are members of what we might call the visible church all those who have joined the church by a profession of faith and baptism are undoubtedly born again, are undoubtedly regenerate, are undoubtedly truly resting in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. He's assuming that some of them aren't. And so what we have here from Peter as we consider suffering in the church is among other things a call to repentance a call to genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a call to realize that God in Christ has done for you what you cannot do for yourself, that God demands holiness and righteousness, demands that we love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet none of us have done that. And Christ has done that for us. Christ has passed the test on our behalf. And so in order for us to trust in this judgment, we must cling to Jesus and him alone. And so friends, this morning as we're mindful that judgment comes first to the household of God, there's an opportunity to ask ourselves, what am I trusting in for my righteousness? Is it anything that I bring to the table? Or am I at the end of my rope? 
but Jesus is holding on to me. So what's the takeaway? Well, it's right there in verse 19. Whether you experience this kind of suffering now or at any time in this life, or whether your life is one more characterized by flourishing, Peter says, trust God and do good. God is a faithful creator. It's interesting that he uses that word creator here. It's the only time in the New Testament that God is explicitly called a creator. It's assumed all over the place, but it's explicitly stated here. And Peter says this to remind us of God's immense power. The one who spoke the world into existence and upholds it even now by the word of his power can sustain you if he so calls you to suffer. And you can trust him by doing good, by loving those who hate you, by blessing those who persecute you. Keep trusting him, doing good. We've had a number of illustrations in this series about uh, those who have gone before, who have died for their faith. We have one more for you today. There was a man named Polycarp. He was a disciple of the apostle John, and he was ordained as the first bishop of Smyrna in the first century. Polycarp found himself in 155 in the Colosseum, surrounded by other criminals, those who were murderers and those who had committed theft and arson and treason. And he was there for the crime of sacrilege. He had refused to swear allegiance to Caesar as Lord. And so as he stood there, In the Colosseum, the proconsul gave him one more chance to recant. And he said to Polycarp, take the oath, confess Caesar as Lord, and I will let you go. Just curse Christ. And Polycarp answered, for 80 and six years, I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme the king who saved me? Friends, God is a faithful creator. He's done more than do you no wrong. He has done you every good. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's given you everything necessary for life and salvation. And should you be counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can trust his faithfulness will continue, that he will be with you and uphold you in your suffering, even unto glory. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you suffered on our behalf and that we might be accounted worthy to suffer for you. Lord, if that should be the case for us, would you uphold us and we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.